Well, I do a lot of research on who I'm speaking with, and so I learn things. Hey, friends, welcome back to the Black Diamond Podcast. This is your host, Eric Malzone. And this is the show where I have the absolute pleasure of interviewing entrepreneurs, founders, change makers, and people who are just creatively leading the way through innovation. And it's not only about successes and, and great stories, because you'll definitely get those, but it's also about the personal challenges and the vulnerability that we face along the way. So this show is brought to you by Level 5 Mentors, helping entrepreneurs and founders achieve the highest levels of freedom in five different categories, time, money, relationships, health, and purpose. And if you wanna find out how you're doing in those five categories, we got you covered. We got a survey for that. Just go to level5mentors.com forward slash survey, and you can take the free entrepreneurial survey and see how you're doing in each category and see where you have room for improvement because hey, we can always be improving. So welcome to the show. Let's get on to it. Oh, we are live. Arnie Sherman, welcome to the Black Diamond Podcast. You know, Eric, it's my pleasure to be with you today. Yeah, it's it's nice, uh, I would imagine, for you to be, for lack of a better term, on the other side of the microphone. Uh, yeah, I'm, you know, I've done, I've, interview. I've done this a radio show on uh, News Talk KGVO in Missoula called What Do You Know for five years, which came about just, you know, by coincidence. And for the last three years, I've been hosting a, a show on Montana Public Radio called Can Do... And this iteration of it is uh, Essential Business Lessons. And I, and, uh, I host a, a podcast every two weeks, which gets produced here in Montana by Montana Public Radio, but it's also published by uh, NPR. So that vehicle is allowed for a fairly uh, ex- expansive audience. But I rarely find myself on the other side. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this opportunity to, uh, uh, to answer your questions rather than ask the questions today. Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. I, I prefer asking questions, but I do both. Uh, I'm on interviewed on other formats as well, and it's 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 fun. It's interesting, and it's always I always learn something too because you know uh, one of the things that we can dive in today is the art of the interview and, and how people conduct them and and their thought process, the preparation, and and all that. And your experience is so vast. I mean, you were let's see, the executive director uh, at the Montana World Trade Center. I know that was um, a big uh, a big you know, section of, of your professional career. Uh, you're also a nuclear submarine enthusiast. Well, we can talk about that later. People are wondering what we're talking about. We'll explain that in a, later in the conversation, but maybe in like five minutes or less, which I know is hard to do, give us, give us your background. How'd you get to be, you know, the host of Can Do Essential Business Lessons? Well, it's a long meandering winding road from uh, being born in the uh, Bronx Hospital in New York City. But I grew up in New York and uh, went to college and uh, graduate school in Ohio. And then the first half of my career, I was doing youth work, running runaway shelters and halfway houses for ex-convicts and and um, children and youth organizations. And then I sort of migrated to doing leadership work and international leadership work. And uh, uh, my passion for, you know, traveling the world and learning about other cultures and working with uh, people in other countries led to uh, a chance to do business in um, contrarian markets, in emerging markets. And uh, my network of young leaders that I had cultivated over time in in many places around the world, like China and Russia and and the other republics of the former Soviet Union, led me to opening an office in Moscow, Russia in, in 1990 and spending uh, seven years uh, traveling back and forth continuously. I had an apartment three blocks from the Kremlin. And so I was doing a lot of, uh, of work helping global companies enter markets they had never been in before. And then I came out to speak at the University of Montana and eventually uh, got offered a job to help build uh, the World Trade Center here for the state of Montana that's domiciled at the business school at the University of Montana and teach in the business school while I continue to do consulting work with a number of companies. And, and then, uh, you know, to this day, doing podcast, radio show, and still consulting, still working with companies that uh, are looking to expand their global footprint. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> I love it. So, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm curious about, because I look at what you've achieved and what you've done over, you know, uh, 
the past decades and now being a podcast host and, you know, having an expansive audience, uh, it's very much kind of the direction I, I want to, I'm moving in, right? It's, it's where I want to be. And did you have a lot of intention behind the steps you took in your career or did you just kind of follow life and, and let it guide you? Or was it a mixture of both? It was really following life. Most of the opportunities that came my way were just by accident. Maybe some, maybe some purposeful accident because I like to put myself in new and unusual situations. You and I share a uh, life guiding principle, which is, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen? Yes. And uh, I've used that to gauge and judge when I've had an opportunity to uh, start doing business. And, you know, for example, the former Soviet Union, I had never worked there before. I had taken a few delegations of, of young business leaders into Russia before before it was, uh, you know, an independent country when it was part of the Soviet Union, when it was being run by uh, Brezhnev and then later Chinyenko and a drop off and then uh, um, eventually, uh, you know, Boris Yeltsin and Putin. But um, my grandfather was an important person in my life. And at one time he said to me, you know, I hope in your life that you, you know, get a chance when you're at a juncture, when you have a chance to do something different or new or something that's, uh, you know, would be trepidating for some people. I, I hope that you will, will do that. It was sort of the road not, you know, the road not taken kind of speech. But I, I took it to heart and... Most of the time I've, I've grown by zigzagging all over the place rather than a straight up career ladder. Yeah. It's that, that question's so powerful. I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen? It sounds so simple, but you know, yesterday I, I was facing a decision that I needed to make soon was, do I actually want to invest in December in advertising for this podcast to build my audience? And I, I thought about it, I'm like, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? You know, I'm out, you know, 2,500, five grand, right? As an right. That's it. That's it. Yeah. That's the worst thing that can happen. I'm like, what am I even? Hesitant? Well, and, you, and you're going to learn from that. If you spend 5,000 and it, and it buys you a lot of exposure and expands your audience, it's a good investment. Absolutely. If you invest and it doesn't do anything, you've learned, you know, you've learned that there's a different pathway that you have to follow. So, you know, any one of those experiences, uh, no matter how the outcome is, you, it's another permutation of, uh, you know, what do you do next? Yes. It's yes. just part of that jagged pathway. And there's, there's a follow-up question I have to that one too, is once I kind of boil it down, right, to what is the worst thing that can happen in this scenario, then I ask myself, okay, well, 10 years from now, will I regret not having tried? Because if I can say, no, not really, then it's not really worthwhile. But I would say, yes, I will regret not having tried. Then I know future Eric's going to look back and say, come on, man, why don't you go for it? Right. I have one or two regrets like that, like related to the juvenile, ju my junior prom in high school, not asking the girl I really wanted to ask who was afraid she was going to turn me down, you know, and that's a regret later on. But I have few because I, I've, you know, tried as much as possible to do, to follow this. And of course, you might know that Kinky Friedman, who's a, a musician and author, ran for the governor of Texas. And uh, he's sort of an odd fellow on the fringe, but his campaign slogan, and he ended up getting, I think, 24% or 28% of the primary vote when he ran was, you know, how hard could it be? <laughs> you know, which is his version of what's the worst thing that could happen, right? You know, how hard could it be to run for governor, to be governor? I'm as smart as, you know, the next, uh, the next person. So, so uh, you know, no regrets. That's a good way to end things. At the very end, when you're looking back, when you're on the, you know, on the road heading downward, you know, look back and say, I don't have, I don't have many regrets or none at all. Yeah, that's fantastic. That, that is, that's indebitably a, a life goal. Uh, I, I want to ask you, since I do have you on this side of the microphone. <laughs> yeah, sure. You, you've done how, how many, with, with the Can Do Show, how many interviews have you done now? With, uh, with Can Do, I've done uh, about 65 interviews. Okay. And then overall in your, would you say in your radio and podcasting career, how many interviews? 200, 200 plus. Yeah. And what do you get from the interview process? Like what are the benefits to Arnie personally? Well, I do a lot of research on who I'm speaking with. And so I learn things mm -hmm. about different areas. I, you know, we have a very, uh, uh, the can do podcast is business focused. And, uh, you know, uh, I don't learn 
as much from that. I mean, I pick up helpful hints and tips and, and uh, you know, I learn about people's lives and backgrounds, which are, which are good. The, uh, the What Do You Know radio show, you know, spans everything from sports to entertainment to politicians. And, uh, you know, I've learned a lot from that just because I've done my homework on people that I would not normally, uh, you know, come in contact with, uh, like Joan Juliet Buck, who was the first American editor of, uh, of uh, Paris Vogue and whose father was business partners with Peter O'Toole. And before that, he was uh, business partners with um, a, a number of other uh, well-known people. And, uh, you know, she was, she lived, she's probably in her early 70s now, but she was sort of the it girl for a whole decade in Europe. And reading her autobiography and talking to her about her life and people that she engaged with and people she dated and people she you know was married to was fascinating. Same thing with Mar, uh, you know, talking with someone like Mar Margot Kidder, who was uh, for our listeners uh, was uh, probably best known for being in uh, uh, Amityville Horror and being Lois Lane in the early Superman shows, oh, and yeah. uh, you know she uh, she um, committed committed suicide and died. But um, you know prior to that, uh, she she was very outspoken about her colorful life. You know, from dating, you know, uh, Pierre Trudeau, the current prime minister's father, to dating uh, Richard Pryor. And, you know, it's interesting stories to learn about somebody's life like that that you would never, you know, normally hear much about. You know, so I think it's the, it's the learning piece of it, learning about different things that I hadn't known about before, reading books that authors have written so I could interview them and and you know, get their background and, and learn their, their, you know, their point of view. And, uh, and then um, just building a network, you end up building a network of people and some you resonate with more than others. And you develop some friendships that you wouldn't have had without doing it. Yeah, that's that last one is really, first of all, I wonder what it was like to date Richard Pryor. I can't imagine that was boring. Well, she was uh, dating Rich. She said she was dating Richard Pryor, Willie Brown, the Speaker of the House, the, uh, one of the most powerful politicians in California, and Pierre Trudeau, all overlapping or maybe simultaneously. <laughs> Just managing that, you know, it, 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 it is a fascinating kind of story. That is fantastic. So, yeah, I, that is something, you know, the, the byproduct of podcasting. I've helped a lot of people. And interviewing people, I should say, because you can it, you can do any medium. You can interview people via blog. You can do a YouTube. You can do a podcast. You can do television, of course. You can do a lot of different ways. But interviewing people, to me, is is so incredibly rewarding. And then the byproducts thereof is you know building a network, educating yourself, all these things you mentioned. And you know a lot of the people that I get a pleasure to work with on the business coaching side, I always urge them. I'm like, you know, hey, start a podcast. What's the worst thing that can happen? Right. That's, that's, a, yeah, that's a, a good tool. The other thing I get from it is well, I get stories. I get great stories. Mm -hmm. I have one for you either from the very beginning. You know, it came to mind when we opened the show. Um, I once co-produced uh, four uh, TV shows with Phil Donahue. For, and again, for our younger listeners, Phil Donahue was the precursor to Oprah. He had probably the most popular daytime talk show in the, in the United States in the 70s and 80s. And I was running uh, the, uh, an organization in Chicago called the Youth Network Council and the Illinois Collaboration on Youth. And I was getting a lot of national notoriety. So he asked me to come on the show and, uh, you know, talk about runaways and talk about uh, gang members and all that. And at one point in, in the first show, it was live. It was a live show. Uh, he said uh, he said to me, I'll never forget this. He said, Arnie, what are kids running to? And I said to him, Phil, that's not the question you want to ask me. The question you want to ask me is, what are they running from? And then he took a break and he leaned over and whispered in my ear, don't ever effing do that to me again. <laughs> this is my show. <laughs> so that was a lesson that I learned about interviewing, you know, and uh, and dealing with guests. Yeah. You, know, you, have, to re you have to respect that uh, it's not my show, it's his show. Yeah. Yeah. When you... <laughs> So when you conduct an interview, Arnie, yeah. where, what kind of mindset do you have going into it? Is there any kind of uh, rules that you, you guide yourself by or what, what's, what's, because there's an art to it, right? Yeah, there is an art to it. And, and you know, as, for, as informal as it often sounds, 
you know, again, when you when you've seen somebody that is, you know, the top of their craft, like a Phil Donahue do it and it's so natural. But there's always there's always a, you know, a method to the to the madness, so to speak. And so in my case, even though I've never written it down, you know, I, I sort of have a mental plan. I, I want I, before I do a show, I, I, I kind of know where I want to start and where I want to end up and sort of how I want to get there. Sometimes if it's not something very that I'm very fluent with, I'll do I'll I'll write down, you know, 10 or 20 questions, depending on the length, you know, and I'm not, I'm not going to ask them all, but I don't want I want to make sure that I cover some of them because they create a story that I want the listener. I'm always focused on this in terms of the audience. Is the audience going to find this interesting? Is the audience going to get something out of this? I don't want this just to be my conversation with this person for my purposes. You know, sometimes I've seen that. I, I, I like uh, uh, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin. But sometimes his conversations with guests are more about him and the guest. And it's like the audience is listening in. And that's okay. It's, it's okay to listen into a private conversation. But, but um, that's not my style. And that's not, you know, I don't have that kind of reputation or relationship bring people on and have personal conversations that other people might find interesting to listen in to. You know, I want to ask the hard stuff as nicely as, as, as I can. I want to think in sound bites, you know, so that people can, you know, I don't like to have long winding questions that lead to long winding answers. I try to be neutral. I obviously have a point of view on many things, politics and others, but during the interviews, I try to keep neutral. Uh, I don't like to ask yes or no questions. Even in business, you know that. You don't want to ask somebody if you're going for money a question they can simply ask by no, you know, or yes. You want to ask questions that lead to a dialogue or a conversation. Um, I want to maintain control. I don't want to lose control. I've had that happen a couple of times where, you know, in my mind I'm saying, how do I shut this person up? You know, they just won't stop. Um, and and uh, I, that's how I think some interviewers with Donald Trump feel, or if you're going to debate him, how do you get him to stop? Because <laughs> once he's on a roll, he doesn't stop, you know, and uh, you know, those are the kinds of things. But, uh, but I think uh, fundamentally and ultimately it's doing your homework and know your subject, know who you're talking to. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of homework to it. And I look at some of my favorite podcasts. I mean, Joe Rogan's my favorite podcast and I'm not the only person in the world, yeah. obviously, who, who likes Joe Rogan. You know, he's been doing it for so long. And I remember I took probably one of the greatest lessons I've had and, you know, that I brought into the interview is uh, I took a improv class, actually, um, huh. back when I was a gym owner, one of my clients taught improv and, you know, invited a bunch of us in to, to take an improv. And there was this exercise that we did. We have an empty box and you pass, it's, it's, it's a run on sentence. So, you know, Everyone says something and then they pass it to the next person. Um, and then that person completes their segment by saying the same thing and, pa and passing it on. And the whole thing was that you're, as soon as you get the box, you have to just, you, you have to have your mind blank and you have to say, oh, look what's in the box. It's this, this, and this. And, and you get a cue from the person before you, which is random and you have no clue what it's going to be that, you know, so basically you have to imagine something that's going to be in the box. And the whole point of this is that there's always something in the box. We always worry that you're going to get it handed to you and you're going to freeze and that you're not going to be able to come up with something. But your mind mm -hmm. always has something in the box. And when I look at interviews, I think it's part of, you know, equal parts of preparation, um, you know, all of, all of the artistry that you mentioned, right, of like, uh, you know, asking the open-ended questions, being prepared, understanding the value you want to give off to the listener and, uh, and controlling the interview. But also there's a part of it that's just having a blind faith that the conversation will go somewhere good. And I'm curious in your experience, you know, how much do you rely on that blind faith in your experience and, and your perspective in order to, to deliver a great interview? A lot. And um, I'm happy when it happens. And I try to... Um, you know, drill down when it's necessary to, uh, you know, to make it interesting. And, and, to, and probably the best feedback I get during an interview is, and it's not, and it's not my guest saying this for a stalling tactic, is when somebody says, that's really a good question. <laughs> right. You know, particularly right. somebody who's very experienced, if you ask them, you know, something in particular, and they say, well, that's a good question. 
you know, that makes me, particularly if it's in, in a discipline that I know nothing very, or very little about. I, I did a show recently with uh, um, Josh Weiner, who is the uh, founder of the College Excellence Program at the Aspen Institute, a pretty heady guy, hmm. you know, who is, has a think tank, um, a bipartisan think tank, talking about the future of college, you know, leadership and college excellence. And uh, I asked him a question. He said, you know, that's a really good question. And I felt kind of good about that because, you know, it's not my area. It's not, you know, it's not my focus right now. I didn't, you know, I didn't, uh, you know, read something and say, boy, that's a good question to ask him. It just came out of the conversation. And that makes me feel like I'm on the right track. If you can push the person into a place where they maybe aren't not completely comfortable, but are not totally prepared at the same time. And then you get into a more, more uh, inviting conversation and a more interesting conversation. Arnie, who do you think, you mentioned Phil Donahue, who I believe is no longer yeah. on the air, right? But who, who do you think is no. doing it well really now? Who's doing it really well now? Well, there, there are some people who, who get a lot big audience and I'm not that big a fan fan of and I, I won't necessarily say that but i do like for example um alec baldwin and uh you know his approach to things while i'm doing the podcast when i'm in podcast season so to speak when i'm recording you know all the time i don't listen to many other podcasts because i don't want to be you know uh, sort of um oriented away from what i do uh, when I started uh, doing the podcast show on, on NPR, I purposely, for a few weeks before doing the first show, didn't listen to any podcasts at all. I didn't want to be influenced by somebody else's demeanor or style or, or questioning approach or any of that sort of stuff. So actually, to be honest, you know, outside of Black Diamond Podcast and, uh, and Alec Baldwin, <laughs> I, I'm not listening to much in, in the podcast space. Yeah, it's. Uh, I will when my season's over. And so, how do you do that? How do you do seasons, right? I, I'm perpetual. I never, I, have, I never stop. Well, my radio show is every week year round. Okay. okay. Sometimes take off in the summer because I have a co-host and uh, he's the general manager of the station. And uh, and having a co-host is an interesting, you know, because I do my podcast on uh, for Montana Public Radio, the Can Do by myself, and then I do the radio show with the co-host, and uh, they both have their advantages and. Uh, and disadvantages. But my podcast is 22 shows every other week for 44 weeks. And then we're off for the summer. And the first two years, it was on uh, um, focusing on entrepreneurs, uh, lessons, you know, uh, you know, lessons you can learn from uh, Montana entrepreneurs. And then we, then we switched because of the COVID uh, pandemic and the need to maybe focus on essential business lessons, which is what we're focusing on now. And, uh, you know, trying to talk about going back to work and and, uh, you know, is, is what we're seeing now going to be permanent? And if it is, you know, how permanent? Mm. Is business travel going to change, uh, you know, substantially from what it was before? You know, and I've talked to a number of people about that. And, and, and there's interesting perspectives on that. I know a number of people say they'll never be traveling as much as they did before because they figured out how to use, you know, the kind of technology we're using today to conduct meetings and to have uh, retreats and to do co digital cocktail parties. And, you know, although I think you still lose something, I think if the office disappears completely and uh, you're not traveling and meeting other cultures in person, in the flesh, you lose, uh, you know, what I like to call the accidental creativity that comes from that. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. So, I had a gentleman who's also from Montana, originally from England, uh, Tim Pollard from Oradium. I don't know if you've if you met Tim or not. I believe he's in the Billings area, <clears throat> but he's a master in communications and he deals with, you know, a lot of large companies, Cisco's and, you know, companies of that ilk. And uh, he helps them work on their communication more, I guess, effectively their sales strategies and how they do that in their presentations. And, you know, we had a long conversation about how this is changing everything and, you know, one of the things that he pointed out is we're all trying to do, we're all trying to recreate a physical meeting in a, in a virtual environment. And that's the wrong thought. It's how do we create something better within the virtual that not basing it off what we do in the physical world, because that may be 
gone for a while. And that tool is completely different. And I, I'd be curious, you know, through your conversations, you know, we mentioned travel um, and, and other, you know, business aspects, but what, what other industries do you think are going to be really disrupted by this whole COVID thing? Well, sale, any sales, hmm. you know, and you sell in every industry. I mean, the sales function in businesses is going to tra- change dramatically. You know, you're not going to have Willie Loman with the suitcase in the car going door to door. At least, at least, uh, you know, at least until maybe there's a, a vaccine or, you know, there's a, a break in the action and, and things get back to a more stable place globally. But as you can see with COVID-19, it starts, it gets quiet and then it erupts again. I mean, Europe's having a horrible time now, countries that didn't have it. The only country that's been COVID-free for 200 days is uh, Taiwan, and they were extraordinarily strict. They were strict to the extent that nobody in the in the U.S. or probably Europe would, you know, would allow that to happen. They would be they would uh, you know rebel against that. But they did it in Taiwan, and they've been they haven't had a single COVID case in in two hundred days. So um, you know, I think it's going to affect sales. It's going to affect things like cruise taking a cruise. Yeah, are you going to want to be on a ship with five thousand people in the middle of the ocean? And, no way. And somebody gets sick. You know, I mean, uh, I don't care how. You know what kind of antigen or antibody tests that you give somebody before they get on board? I'm, uh, you know, c- cruising is is going to change. You may you may have virtual cruising in the future. You know, with artificial intelligence and virtual reality. I think there's going to be a lot of play for that. But you sacrifice something. It's different, and as you said, you maybe can make it better in some ways. But for example, I don't think virtual dating is the same as real dating. No. You know, yeah. <laughs> I, I hope not. You know, and yeah. Uh, well, yeah, uh, for some people maybe it is, but I'm just saying there's there's certain things that you cannot completely make digital or electronic or uh, or uh, remove from the personal interaction. Human society is based on interaction, and you know, being in groups, and as you know, unusual as it seems, if you were going to create a society from scratch, Eric, you wouldn't say we're all going to live in all these separate places. And then, I mean, as it has been for several hundred years, and then when we wake up in the morning, we're all going to get into vehicles or transportation and all go to a center place where we're all going to spend eight or 10 hours, like, you know, in a city, you know, the world is built on thousands of cities. And then at the end of your work experience, you're going to get back in some transportation and go way back out and, I mean, it doesn't make sense. It's not. It's not economical. It's not time. You know, sensitive. It's not any of those things. But you know, it, it's it's lasted this long because I think the need for different kinds of human interaction. Hmm. Ar- Arnie, you strike me as an optimist uh, through and through. So, how do you think this pandemic is going to make the world better? Well. It, 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 I am an optimist, and I, I like to think that uh, every experience has, uh, you know, an upside or something that you can learn from it or build from it. And um, I do think that um, people in many places, even though there's a reaction, you know, in the United States and in some other places, Germany, other places, to this, you know, uh, giving up of individual liberty, like wearing a mask in order to protect your neighbor. It's not, you know, we don't care as much about, you know, if you want to kill yourself, that's fine. But, uh, you know, we don't want you to kill somebody else. I heard the same logic, by the way, when seatbelts first came in. Yeah. You know, somebody said, I, I, I don't want to wear one. If I die, I die. And they said, well, it's not you we're worried about. <laughs> you want to kill yourself, it's fine, but you might kill somebody else because you're not wearing a seatbelt or you don't have any of them in your car when something happens and there's other people in it. Um, but I do think there's this, the, the, this is the first time in my lifetime that the entire scientific community of the world is working on the one thing in a, a collaborative fashion. You know, hundreds of companies, you know, even though there's some competition because people want to be able to produce a vaccine and want to be, be able to produce a, a rapid diagnostic test and, uh, you know, want to be able to create mechanisms so that people can be feel free and uh, 
you know, not as fearful as they are. It's the first time the world is kind of working together on things. And I think that that may extend itself into other areas. You know, it also, it, it gives you a sense of, uh, of not knowing what you miss until you don't have it, like our inability to uh, travel to another country, you know, or even stay away from hot spots. I mean, you know, the people moving out, I mean, New York has 15,000 empty apartments. Hmm. That hasn't happened, you know, for 30 years or 40 years. So, I mean, it, it, ha- it has made some changes. And, and I think it, it leads more to rethinking in some ways of what's important. You know, and a concern and multi-generational concern. You're in your 20s. Maybe you never thought about your grandparents, but now you you're in a position where you may be able, you, you know, may be able to help them or hurt them based on your own behavior and taking some more you know, responsibility for yourself as as you affect other people. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me, Arnie, as I as I hear you answer, because those are all really, really good points. And I think uh, it's something that people think about. But we're all so focused on, oh, geez, you know, I can't travel. I can't got to wear this stupid mask all the time. I don't, I don't have to. I just, you know, should uh, in all these things that we're restricted by. But meanwhile, just think of it as Halloween every day. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot of great things happening too, you know. Yes. And I, I feel like you know, if if the media kind of grasps onto that, that it would be great. I mean, the bee populations are up. If you look at the the 405 freeway in Los Angeles, it's it's barely any cars on it nowadays, right? And you know, all kind of pollution's going down. All kinds of good things are happening. Cities and people are starting to realize, like, hey, if I get to work remotely now, I can focus on my lifestyle right. and I can pick a place that I want to live in. And you know, unfortunately, that means you know a huge influx in Montana. <laughs> but we'll deal well, with it. It uh, also means less of trepidation about uh, you know integrating technology in your life, you know, multi generationally. Yes. You're going to have to, you know, you, whether you like it or not. I mean, I have more people asking me things about, you know, you know, what kind of, yeah, what, what kind of uh, um, software am I using? Um, you know, what works best? Or what are you listening to online? I mean, there is a change. You know, there is a change. It's certainly going to change for movie theaters, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, now you can watch uh, the Chicago 7 and Borat, you know, on, uh, you know, Netflix and Amazon and not have to go into a movie theater. Did you watch Borat? Have you seen that yet? Yes, I have watched. Borat. Did you like it? Yes, I like. Okay, <laughs> okay, I haven't watched it yet. I was, I was like, uh, we yeah, could talk about, it, but you probably get thrown off the air from it. But I have to. <laughs> yeah. In his own weird, bizarre, you know, uh, uh, you know, Andy Kaufman esque, you know, from the last century way, he's he has really amazing points to make about the, uh, you know, the social situation that the world finds itself in. Yeah, he's brilliant. I, I oh, he's very, he's, he's, it's really amazing. I mean, it's funny and it's, you know, and it's obscene at points and it goes too far and it makes you uncomfortable. But isn't that what that's supposed to do? Yes. I mean, that's, he does what he's supposed to do. It's supposed to make you feel uncomfortable watching what, what what's happening. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So here, here's the question I've been dying to ask you since, All right. since, we've, uh, since we first connected. If one is so inclined... How does one go about buying a nuclear submarine? Well, you know, in my country, everybody very, very poor. <laughs> my maid is poor. My driver is poor. My gardener very poor. Everybody I'm in is very poor. So in 1990, I'm in my office in Moscow on Tverskaya Ulitsa Domshest. I was three blocks from the Kremlin. And I was representing a number of American and global companies trying to figure out how to enter the market as the Russian market was opening. And I get a call at the office, which is ironic, uh, the name. I get a call and my uh, uh, person answering the phone comes in and says, uh, her name was Snezhana, which means snowbird in English. And she says, there is somebody on here from the Russian Union of Industrialists and Entrepreneurs, a word that I'd never heard in Russia being used. Uh, and that was run by a, a guy named Ar- Arkady Volsky. But it wasn't Arkady who was on the phone. It was a Russian general whose staff had called and said he wanted to meet with me the next day and would send somebody over to take me to the meeting. Wow. And I said, you know, I, I and they, they, they didn't ask whether I wanted to go or not. They just said, we're sending somebody tomorrow at five o'clock to, to meet you to come to this meeting with the general. 
And so after uh, we got off the phone, I said to uh, Snejana, I said, uh, what, what, do, what do I want to go? You know, what, is the, what do they want from, you know, I, I just, I couldn't imagine why I was running an advisory company and I was one of the few Americans in the country at the time that wasn't part of the uh, U.S. Em- embassy entourage. And I said, I don't want to go. And she wouldn't. She goes, yet, 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 you have to go. General asks you to go to a meeting. You have to go. So I said, okay. So this guy comes to my office and he says, uh, you know, follow me and and uh, you know, in Russian. And uh, we get on a, a, a train, a, a Russian subway, and we go four stops outside of the city. And this was in the wintertime and it was getting dark. And so I didn't even know where we were. And we get off the, ch- this is a long story. I just want our listeners to know this, but it's, it's I think it's worth listening to. And we get off the train and we go into a, a dirty, smelly, rundown train station. And we walk down this hall, and there's a big gray metal door with a big uh, sort of uh, keyhole in it. And this guy takes out a huge, huge chain, uh, a, a key ring with all these big skeleton keys, and puts one and opens the door. And the door opens up, and he turns on a single light that's hanging from the ceiling. Doesn't sound like the intro to a you know a murder mystery or something. Yeah, it does. I'm imagining it in my head. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, whatever you imagine is pretty much the the way it was. <laughs> and at that moment, I really had this fear: like, should I bolt? Right. You know, when I'm I'm and there's a stairwell going down under the train station, and I'm saying to myself, you know, it's too late to bolt. If they wanted to kill me, you know, they want to. You know, teach me a lesson. They're going to do it one way or another. I'm a guest in their country. They know where I am at all times. So I go down the stairwell, and there's another metal door with another key, you know, a skeleton key, and opens it up. We go in. He turns on the light, and there's a long wooden table, about uh, I'd say forty feet long, and it's covered with, in, in Russian, it's called zakuska. In English, it's hors d'oeuvres, appetizers. <laughs> And I said, well, if they're going to kill me, they wouldn't cater it, right? Yeah. I mean, that's not what they normally would do. <laughs> so I go in, and there's nobody in the room. And then he motions me into another room behind it and says to me, take off all your clothes. <laughs> Which is not usually happens when you go out to dinner. And appetizers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and with appetizers. <laughs> and there's some metal lockers there. So I take all, he, he gives me this little small towel, and he takes, I take off all my clothes. And I go into another, through another door. And in this other room, there's these big, I mean, they're like 10 times the size of a normal hot tub. These big cement tubs. And there are three guys sitting in one. And they're obviously, they're in the water. They're, they're not wearing any clothes. There's no bathing suits, none of that kind of stuff. And they motion me to come sit in the tub with them. And when I realized Two things. One is this is a secret, you know, playground for these, you know, because everybody's supposed to be the same in the Soviet Union, right? But some people are more equal than others. And when you're a general or, you know, a high-ranking official, you have perks. And this private club, which is how I interpreted it, was a perk for this general and maybe some other people as well. The other reason, the other thing was I couldn't have any wires on me or recorders or any of that sort of thing. So I, I go in the tub and we start a conversation and he has a translator with him. So I'm, it's clear. And then he says to me, it starts off by saying, I have Antonov 225, which is the largest cargo plane in the world. <laughs> he says, would you like to buy it? I know you work for a big global transportation company. One of my clients was a large shipping company. Uh, would you like to buy it? Well, I know nothing about buying aircraft. I was not part of my portfolio, but I said, uh, well, how much does it cost? And he says, we give you a very good deal, $8 million U.S. dollars. And I, and I said, I said, could I see it? He said, no, 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 we, 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 have to, we need the money to finish building it. At that time in Russia, the, the government had gone into sort of free fall, and this, they began the, the transition to a, uh, uh, a demand economy from a command economy. And the, the governmental institutions weren't getting any more money from the central government. They had to fend for themselves. Hmm. You know, so I kind of figured out that they needed about $6 million to finish the aircraft, and then they were trying to sell it, make a couple of million dollars off of it. And I said, well, my 
client doesn't really deal with aircraft, but I'm sure I can go back and talk with him about it. I can't tell you now, yes or no. He says, so you handle shipping. So your company has ships. I said, yes, they have 80 container ships and blah, blah. He says, we have very good nuclear submarine. I'm doing a bad, I won't do the bad accent. (laughs) Would you like the submarine? And I said, I really don't think they're interested in a nuclear submarine, but you know, when I go back, I'll ask and, you know, find out, you know, and uh, obviously I knew that you just can't buy a nuclear submarine from the Russian military. Although later on, I realized that Colombian drug dealers actually uh, uh, several years later did a deal and bought some submarines from the Russian military in order to move drugs, uh, you know, from South America, you know, to other uh, continents. So, uh, I went back and, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, told the story and, uh, you know, our, our people didn't want any, you know, none of my clients. I mean, I didn't, I didn't pursue it very far. And then I just sent a nice gift to, uh, to the general with, with, with a note, you know, that was sort of a Russian calligraphy note saying, I've checked with all the people. I'm sorry we're not in a position at this particular time to engage in this, but I enjoyed, you know, enjoyed the time with you. And I never heard from him again. <laughs> So that's that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> oh, I love it. That's so interesting. But, Go ahead. But my career is built around. I I've, I remember my life based on lots of stories. I, you can tell I'm a bit of a storyteller, and it things resonate. When I was teaching at the university in the business school, most of the students, you know, who it's been, uh, you know, I started teaching in '97. I stopped in. Uh, in 2014. Um, and so some of my students now are executives in their own rights in their own companies. And when I run into them, they say, we, I remember, and they remember stories. They don't remember, you know, lectures particularly or, or uh, concepts I was trying to get by, but they remember the stories, you know, and some of those stories now are over 20 years old and they still remember them. So, uh, uh, I have a life built on stories. Well, isn't that, I mean, really when it comes down to communicating a point or a lesson or even in sales, you know, if you're trying to communicate a message of value, storytelling is everything. You know, you can do bullet points in a presentation, but if you tell it and fashion it and weave it into a story, um, it's a hundred times more powerful and people don't forget. That's exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. And podcasts are a way to tell stories. I mean, it's an elongated story. It has lots of different pieces to it, but it really is a, it's a storytelling mechanism. Yeah, I agree. Out of, you know, one last question, out of your time in Russia, um, what, what, what did you take away from it? What, what pieces of their lifestyle or, or major takeaways? I mean, everyone over here, you know, in the United States is, is taught mostly through media to fear right? Fear Russia, right. fear China. Um, besides obviously having a moment within that story where you violently were fearing for your life. Uh, but what's your takeaway on Russian culture? Well, there's, you know, it's a Slavic mentality. And if you've ever read, you know, Dostoevsky or Tolstoy, it's, they're, 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 it's, it's, a, uh, it's, it's a pessimistic society to begin with. Hmm. Every Russian fairy tale story ends with somebody's face with the decision of either being killed or tortured. <laughs> you know, there's no happy endings to anything. My employees, I would pay them very well and they would spend all their money every week. And I would say to them, oh, don't you want to, you, you told me you wanted to travel around the world. How come you're not saving any money? And they would say, well, this is all going to end. Mm. You know, this is all going to, this is all going to end. And it was, it was propped up. There was a time probably in the 1950s when Russia and the United States were comparable. When an apartment in New York City, like if you ever remember watching The Honeymooners mm-hmm. and Ralph Cramden was a bus driver, you know, and had a pretty Spartan apartment in that series in the 50s. The Russian apartment and the Russian job and the Russian life was pretty much similar. But we kind of escalated and they kept on spending more and more of their revenue as a country in military to the point where it strangulated everything else that was going on. And even today, you have what what is referred to as the Potemkin village, which is like a Hollywood movie set. And a lot of the cities, the two or three major cities, the main streets are all have fashionable stores and they look like every other capital in the world. But you walk six blocks away 
And it's not, it's the way it was 20, 25 years ago. You know, when I was working there in the 90s, the average uh, Russian family lived in, a family of four lived in 400 square feet and shared a kitchen and bathroom with maybe two other families in their buildings. They had central heat, you know, that got turned on or turned off by the whim of, uh, you know, the state, as it was referred to. A doctor, you know, made the, uh, you know, a surgeon made the equivalent of about three or $400 a month, the wow. U.S., you know, uh, uh, and everybody's had a job, but at their job, they were always hustling side jobs in order to make enough money to, you know, to, uh, to compete. And, uh, you know, finally, when they couldn't keep the West out anymore, everybody there realized, you know, that uh, what they had was inferior to what was going on in the rest of the world. Yeah. So it was, it was, it, you know, and, and some things have approved, but not, you know, not very much. You go, you go to a, a town that, uh, you know, you, you go to, uh, um, I don't know, Ekaterinburg, which is an industrial town in the mountains. You might see a few Mercedes and there might be a few rich people and there might be an oligarch or two, you know, that's around. But the average person isn't doing very well. Hmm. You know, they don't they live a life that's not too dissimilar to the life they lived, uh, you know, under communist rule. Hmm. Would you say that uh, it, gives you, it, it has given you maybe some sort of... More fond appreciation of of the life that we have available to us here. Well, yes, the in in places like the Soviet Union and China and, and lots of, lots of China, not obviously in 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 Shanghai or or Hong Kong, which are very sophisticated cities, but in the smaller cities in 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 China. I mean, we have in the United States eleven cities with over a million people. They have two hundred. Yeah, it's crazy. So I mean, it's a totally different place. But in places like that, and and. Uh, um, other uh, third world c- countries, the basic necessities of life are very time consuming. You know, you your power goes out and uh, you make a phone call and uh, they say you got to come down and pay $8. You can't just wire the money. You can't just put it on. You, you got to get in line and wait all day. You know, and uh, so we what we take for granted or what we grumble about here often compared to the experiences in uh, in other places and, you know, maybe in 80 countries around the world or a hundred countries around the world. You know, my time in Mongolia, there was only, I was one of the first uh, foreigners to go into Mongolia after it became a separate company. I was, excuse me, a separate country. And uh, at that time, there were only three phone lines in the entire country that went to the outside world. And you had to make an appointment at the central uh, telegraph office for a 15 minute time block to go in and be able to get an outside line to call anywhere outside the United States. That was, hmm. you know, the nineties seemed like a long time ago, but in, in, you know, in retrospect, it's not that long ago that that's how unconnected that country was from the rest of the world. Yeah. That's so, so we do have, you know, what many things that we take for granted, other people, you know, the, you know, would, uh, would find amazing even today even you know you can buy cell phones everywhere and you can you can you know you can watch videos and you have all of those kinds of things but the the conglomerate of the daily slog just to live is is uh, so much better in you know in in the western developed uh, countries and in and the countries in asia like singapore and hong kong and others that have uh, that have uh, developed uh, you know beyond uh, the scope of many of the other countries around them, like Bhutan. It's 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 a really good reminder, and I'm I'm glad this topic came up. You know, my wife is Brazilian. She spent you know half of her life here, half of her life in Brazil, and there does seem to be sometimes uh, I pick up on almost an anti-American sentiment within America, of you know uh, people complaining and you know about certain things, this or that, opportunities. But she always reminds me, and it gives me great perspective. And she's like, you know, this, she's like, I, I, she gets upset when people uh, complain about things in America. She's like, this is still the greatest country. The opportunity here, she came here. Uh, her first job was, you know, working the fry station at McDonald's. And now she's a director of operations for a large internet ad company. And, uh, you know, that, that, those opportunities don't happen right. well, very often. I was in Brazil a few years ago when you're driving from the airport, uh, like in Rio de Janeiro, you, you drive past people living in sewer pipes. Yes. Yes. You know, it's not just poverty. a few. You, yeah. know, it, 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 you know, it's shocking that that's, 
you know, the dichotomy, the differences, you know, and, uh, you know, we have people in hunger in this country and we have people that live, you know, poorly. And uh, uh, but I think there is greater opportunity, you know, and greater, you know, support and greater resources available here than in, uh, than in places like that for people who are marginalized. Yeah, I agree. That's a whole different. That's a whole different podcast. Yeah, that's a whole different <laughs> podcast uh, for sure. But you know, Arnie, it's 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 real pleasure. I, I love your stories. I, I appreciate all the insights you brought into on you know the art of interviewing, um, business lessons, all of these things. It's it's been uh, it's been really valuable, and I appreciate you coming on. So I guess give us the goods. Where where do people find you? Where where can they go to to get your podcast, your radio show, all of that? Right. Well, if you want to listen to the radio show, uh, it, it is uh, most of the previous 200 shows are cataloged uh, um, online. You can go to uh, What Do You Know at News Talk KGVO, the Missoula radio station that people are familiar with. Uh, the Can Do podcasts are all uh, digital and, and available online. At uh, You can go to Montana Public Radio and, and uh, click on uh, you know Can Do, or you can go to your favorite uh you know, hosting site. It's on all of them, including uh, NPR. Right on. Arnie, thank you so much for coming on. It's greatly appreciated. And, hey, it's my uh, pleasure, Eric. It's, it's great talking to you. I could talk for hours to you, but you probably get bored by that time. <laughs> I, doubt I doubt it. I doubt it. Ladies and gentlemen, Arnie Sherman. Thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure. Hey, everybody. This is your host, Eric Malzone. Don't leave yet. I have a few more requests for you. So if you got value out of this podcast, I ask you to do a few things. Number one, go to wherever you're listening, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and go ahead and subscribe to the show. Number two, while you're there, if you feel that we earned it, please leave us a nice review. Number three, share it. Whether it be social media, email, texting, whatever it may be. I'm sure you know somebody who would get value out of this episode just like you did. So please go ahead and share it. And that's how we get the word out. So it's really valuable and super appreciative. It only takes a minute of your time. Next, if you know of somebody, including yourself, who would be a great guest for the show, please head on over to level5mentors.com, L-E-V-E-L, the number five, mentors.com. Get in touch with me. Let me know what you're thinking. Uh, make an introduction. Whatever it may be, you can also get me directly in my email, which is eric, E-R-I-C, at level5mentors.com. Lastly, if you just want to chat, you want to find out more, if you want to expand on some ideas, I love hearing from the audience. So go ahead and hit me up on social media. I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. You also have my email already. So I love to hear from you. I'm always looking for ways to improve the show, and I'm always looking to have great conversations. So don't hesitate to reach out. And once again, thank you for listening to the Black Diamond Podcast, and you can expect a lot more from us.